This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here at Asia Torah in the old city of Jerusalem overlooking the Temple Mount. Um, this class is in honor of uh, uh, all kinds of things, but one of them is Binio uh, Nochum Ben Chana should have great success in business. And uh, can you pour me two waters, please? Thank you. Um, today we're talking about mastering free will. Mastering free will doesn't mean you're going to be a master, but at least you'll know the categories. So when it comes to mastering free will, there's, um, there's five steps. And uh, those five steps are, um, are constant. Oops, that's not good. Thank you. Constant reevaluation. Battleground. Soul. Constant reevaluation, battleground, and soul and God. These are the five steps to mastering free will. Step number one is to recognize that that every moment is a chance of choice. So right now you can choose to be in Jerusalem. You can. Any of you uh, raise your hand if you woke up in Jerusalem or you chose to be in Jerusalem today. Raise your hand if you woke up in Jerusalem. Okay, so almost all of you woke up in Jerusalem. What I'd like you to do now is choose to be in Jerusalem. But I'm already here. Okay. Choose it. Because you can be in a state of constant choice. Okay? Let's see you choose your posture. Don't move. No, stay in your posture. Choose it. As opposed to just being it. Okay, if you want to fix it, you can fix it now. If your posture needs fixing, feel free to straighten out your posture. Um, oh, by the way, we have evaluations. Oh, great. <laughs> this is not going to be a very good day for my evaluation. That's funny. I was excited about evaluations. You know, like, it's nice to hear things, unless you're like having a bad day. So, constant is uh, the ability to constantly choose. Okay, can you choose your parents? Yes, you can. When you hang up quickly on your mother by telling her she called at the wrong time, are you choosing her or are you choosing not her? Is there, can you choose your parents? Oh, yes, you can choose your parents. You get that? So there are opportunities of choice that are going on. You need a table for three? Uh, there, well, it could be a table for one and two. Okay, uh, maybe this nice lady will join this nice lady, and then they'll have a table for two back there. Come sit more up close. Table for two, please. Thank you so much for moving for these people. Are you going up one? Okay. And um, for those who just arrived, we're doing. Uh, we're talking about mastering free will, and there are five steps of mastering free will. And we're we what we're doing. We're just uh, finishing up the first one, which is constant. That every moment is a chance for a choice. Every every moment, you can choose your parents. You can choose a career you're already in. 
You can choose to be in the city you're already in. You can choose to be in the marriage you're already in. But someone who's a master of free will, you understand why we're calling this mastering free will? Because to live with mastery means that you're always choosing it. Um, can we adjust you guys a little bit? Because uh, you're blocking the gentleman behind you. Maybe, uh, yeah, there, that's good. Excellent, perfect. Okay, so... Anyway, so everyone take a moment, just as an exercise, take a moment of something in your life that is, but you're in resistance of it. Something in your life. It might be something to do with health, maybe digestion, maybe uh, some other thing you're dealing with in your health um, it could, that you resist. It could be a relationship you're in resistance of. It could be your, your uh, family tradition you're in resistance of. Hey, who knows what? There's something you're in resistance of. And so you're, you're like actively not choosing it, but not even knowing you're doing that. You're just resisting it. But it is, and it's not going away. I mean, you're, you're, is, your, is your father the way he is? Yes or no? Is your father the way he is? Is he exactly the way he is? He is exactly the way he is. And is he exactly not the way he's exactly not? Is that the father you've got? And your mother, is she exactly the way your mother is? Yes, your mother is exactly the way she is. And she's exactly not the way she's exactly not. Like, to the, to the decimal point. She's, that's exactly who she is. So, anyway, think of anything you're resisting and choose it. Because being in a state of resistance is never going to be good for you, but rather being in a constant state of choice of what is is a pretty good place to be. It's a, it's a certain state of surrender. And there's even people who, God forbid, are, are so resistant that, that their own bodies can start resisting them. You know, they can actually have cells that resist the body and try to kill it off. And so we, the, we have to be, we have to embrace what is. And one of the most important, as far as spirituality, because this course is called Practical Spirituality this hour, is in spirituality is God is creating it the way it is. God, they, what is the USB interface between God and creation? And the answer is exactly what's happening right now. And you have to embrace that and surrender to that because that's what it is. Can you adjust? Sure. Make all the adjustments you want. You can grow. You can be healthier. You can be wealthier. You can be. There's all kinds of adjustments you can make. But, but until you're at peace with and choosing what is, so then you're in resistance to, to creation, and therefore you're in resistance with God. And I don't know if you're going to get very far resisting the creator's, the creator's will and wisdom, for now. And just one more additive to that is that I know all of you need to grow a lot, and I need to grow a lot. Meaning we all need to get like to a better place between us and God. But that's a perfect way to feel totally disconnected is if you're always thinking about where you should be as opposed to where you are. Meaning, yes, you're going to grow and you're going to get to a place where you're a better recept receiver of God's you know, relationship. Yes, you'll get there. But where you're at now is also a receiver. And wherever you are is where you're now currently receiving. But I meet people all the time who are so busy you know, dissatisfied with where they're at now as a receiver. I'm making a picture of like a satellite dish with my hands. That's why I'm doing this. 
They're, 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 they're not satisfied with what kind of receiver they are right now. That they don't receive the relationship now. But now is the relationship you're having with God. But really now, right now is your relationship with God. And not only that, but this moment right now is the most spiritual moment you've had all day. It's the most spiritual moment you've had all day. What is a spiritual moment? A spiritual moment is a moment connected to God. Well, let's look at how God connects. Here we have God. And he's outside of time. So so the past, the present, and the future... The past, the present, and the future are all the same to a being that's outside space and time. That's clear, right? But tell me, what is God creating right now? Let's not go with any ear right now, please. What is God creating right now, past, present, or future? What's he creating right now? Past, present, or future? Can you turn off the... No, no, he'll do it. Can you turn off the air conditioning, please? What is God creating right now, past, present, or future? It's a bit of a trick question because I already gave it away. <laughs> Should I give it away again? What is God creating right now, past, present, or future? Which one? Present. And think about how, how dorky it is to think that God would create the past. Like, like of all the wastes of times I've ever heard of, like creating the past... Gee, that's really going to be uh, effective. <laughs> wow, that's going to be helpful. You know, God certainly isn't creating the past. And and how about the future? Is God creating the future? For sure not. He's got aware of the future, absolutely. And total awareness of the, of the future. So what you realize is God's not creating a year ago, a year from now, an hour ago, an hour from now, a minute ago, a minute from now, a second ago, a second from now. What is the USB interface between God and creation or otherwise God and you? What is that interface? Right here and right now. So this automatically is the most spiritual moment you've had all day. But not only was that moment that I just said when I said this moment, not only was that moment, so is this moment. And this moment, and this moment, and this moment, and this moment, and this moment. And as long as you ride that moment, which is called presence, what they t- call today mindfulness, but as long as you ride that, that the unfolding of infinite in this the finite, because really the world's just an unfolding from the infinite to the finite. And worlds don't create themselves. Wait, you think there's something in this pen that can create it from a second ago? There's no creative activity in this pen. It's just a pen, nor is there any creative activity in my body. It's just a body. There's nothing in the entire contents of my body that could possibly generate it a second from now into the future. Nothing inside this body can generate this body into a minute from now. There's nothing that creative in it. If you look at the cells, they're not necessarily doing anything that creative. Everything is coming into existence. It's an unfolding. The world is an unfolding of, of now. Which brings us to a very interesting question is, does God create time? Or is time a psychological thing based on the perspective of the perceiver? Well, based on what we've been saying, it sounds like God doesn't create time, does he? Rather, time is just a psychological perspective of the perceiver. 
Because your perception has, is outlasting the present. It has memory of the past. It, has, it can uh, you know, kind of predict the future based on having had a past. You're a pretty good predictor. You know, I see uh, none of you fell on your face walking through the door here, which means you predicted walking pretty well based on every time you've ever walked. So you're a pretty darn good predictor. Hence, you could walk. Not to mention, you can understand the English as it's coming out of my mouth, which is not... I haven't spoken a single word of English since class started. This is only vibrations. You know, if, if it's an A, it's the vibrations of an A, it's 440 oscillations per second. And if I get more, you know, into it, and I start speaking like this and stuff, that's 880 per, oscillations per second. So, I'm not even speaking English. All that's happening is is that now is unfolding. Now is unfolding. There's, there is no such thing as time nor space for that matter. There's only the unfolding of the infinite into the finite at all time. This is why Kabbalah teaches us that everything is made of God, but we would say rather godliness because we have two different names for God. Have you ever noticed that people who make blessings use two names of God? Baruch Atah, and then they say Hashem's name, which is, you know, we use the word Adon, and then Noi. And then we have another name, Elokeinu. You notice that? We always have two names of God. You ever wonder why we have, why do we have two names of God? So one name of God is the enfolded name of God. That's Hashem, Baruch Hashem. And then we have the unfolded name of God, which is how God unfolds himself into this world, which is called Elokeinu. So one is Hashem surrounding space and time, beyond space and time. And then we have the name of God of how God fills space and time, which is called Elokus. I mean, this is why we say, and why the Torah clearly states, Atahoreis you have shown us to know, Ki, that, Hashem, Hu HaElokim, He is what's filling all creation. That's why the name Elokim, the second name is plural. Because... <laughs> Because everything, there's a lot of stuff being created, a lot of protons, neutrons, and electrons, a lot of chairs and tables and people and 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 uh, fibers in my sweater. So Atar Das, you have shown us, shown us, you've shown us to know. When did he show us? When did God show us? When did God show us that all there really is is an unfolding of infinite into finite? When did God show us that? Nice seat right next to this lady here. When did God show us that... Oh, you came at great timing, by the way. Listen to what I'm saying. When did God show us that act, the actual physical world is made of spirituality? It's only made of God. There's no such thing as space and time. Time we already dealt with. There's definitely no such thing as time. Because God's just unfolding. Time's just a psychological perspective of the perceiver. But there's not even space. And the Torah says... You have been shown to know this. When did God show us this? Yeah, at the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, everyone was taken on a full-on experience. Everyone had a mystical experience. And by the way, for all of you who think, I pity the foo who thinks this, but everyone who thinks that you can get to God intellectually through Torah study, but not a direct perception of spirituality, if you, th- if you think you can just get there from classes or, or uh, reading Chumash or reading that's the five books or, or you think you're going to get there from perfunctory uh, expression of prayer through the, through 
three times a day we pray. If you think you're ever going to have an experience of Hashem Hua Elohim, you know, good luck. Good luck with that. Because I've met people of 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years. I don't know how they keep going. They're like the Energizer Bunny. And they still haven't had a... a they have, still haven't had a... You can bite it for experience of God. Like where you, 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 you taste it. You, you got it. Meaning it's, it, it happens to be ineffable. Meaning you'd never be able to explain it to anybody. And it's... Uh, it's, it's, it's something you know more than you know you have five fingers on your hands, so no one could ever, you'd never deny it, because you've had the experience. It's an amazing thing that, that's achievable. And, but we can all achieve that. Every one of us can achieve that. This isn't a class on how to achieve that, but I would imagine that even as I speak, maybe you're starting to get into it. Because we just got through saying there's no time, but rather... God is creating this moment. This is the unfolding. In other words, this is the God experience. And that doesn't show up in a book about it. That shows up in your presence having it. You can read your whole life about things. But then there's taking a deep breath. I'm going to take a deep breath. Release. Let's do that again. This time everyone doing it instead of just sitting there like some kind of like doorknob or something okay let's take a deep breath together release and recognize quietly just get into that quiet space breathe in again that this is the unfolding of infinite into finite now is it going to hit you in the face like Sinai Mount Sinai no that's not going to happen but simply by you taking in a breath and being present in the perception of the fact that this does not perpetuate itself. It's being perpetuated by an unfolding of the infinite into the finite. Automatically, you get transported from, from mundane to holy. And God is accessible right there. Now open a Torah book. Now go do one of the three prayers a day. Now go light Shabbos candles. Now go make Kiddush. But make it from this perspective. And was that complicated? Was that difficult? It's pretty simple. But it's the kind of stuff that we forget about. We forget quickly. Why? Why do we forget so quickly? And the answer is because you've got a part of your brain that's just built to navigate. And it, it, if left unchecked, it will literally mop the floor with your life. The part of you that just can't stop navigating. It's just your busy brain in the way of presence. It's a very important part of the brain, especially when you're driving a car at 120 kilometers per hour. You want that part of the brain, especially getting around doorways and the old city stones and steps. And That's an important part of your brain. It's, it's very important for navigation. But uh, sadly, you have it navigating even when you're standing across from somebody or sitting across from your... You, people are navigating sitting across from their own spouse. How are they going to survive this interaction? As opposed to just getting totally present with them, which would 
if you were totally present with a spouse who's a little volatile right now or maybe upset or disappointed or, or maybe testing you in some way, being totally present with them would be the best solution and sensing them. Like na- going into your navigation brain as if you're in some kind of a, you know, a high speed, you know, 360. Like that, that, that's not going to be a good navigation with a spouse. But we're, but we're, we're just in constant navigation because that part of our brain, which we just shut off. So let's stay there. That's a good place to be. So, so anyway, this, this constant is super important in being a master of free will. Because God gave you the ability to choose that. And by the way, I just want to finish that sentence. You have been shown to know. Ki Hashem, that which surrounds. That's what fills. Okay? He's not just the tortilla. He's the rice and beans. Okay? He's filling the creation. And what are the last three words? I mean, you can't get stronger than this. That's why I wanted to bring up the sentence again, because the last three words are stronger than the whole sentence. Ain od what? Mil vadoi. Ain there is not od anything else. Mil vadoi, except for him. There is nothing else. So all the things that you thought were so important. They may be important, but they're only as important as our King Solomon said. They're only as important as, the, as in as much as they're from above the sun. Because he said the whole world's meaningless. God is the meaning of the world. And all the stuff that man runs around and says, well, maybe this is meaningful, is meaningless, says King Solomon. In a whole book about it called Ecclesiastes, it's an entire book of the meaninglessness of this world. But every time he calls this world meaningless, he always says, where? Where's it meaningless? Under the, under the sun. It's meaningless. Every time he mentions the word meaningless, he'll always say under the sun. What are you supposed to do as a good Jew? Under the sun, it's meaningless. However, what? Over the sun, above the sun. What's above the sun? Yeah, meaning above the galaxies, above time and space. Above the sun, meaning God's will and wisdom for this creation. <laughs> That's meaningful. So if I see a cow while I'm hiking with a friend, and my friend's a vegetarian, and says, oh, look at that beautiful cow. And I say, frankly, it makes me think of burgers. <laughs> and then we got nine other people who all have their opinion. All we're getting is just human beings making stuff up about a cow. King Solomon says, that's really cute and sweet that human beings have this, this meaning-making going on in their head. But when you stop making meaning, what shows up? What, what do you get present to when you stop making meaning out of the cow? What shows up? The cow. When you stop making meaning out of, out of whatever, out of, out of your mother, what shows up? Your mother, when you stop making meaning out of your father and all his unsolicited advice, what shows up? Your father. When you stop making meaning out of your spouse, what shows up? Your spouse. When you stop making meaning out of your kids, what shows up is your kids. So on a physical level, under the sun, everything becomes what it is, which means you're present again. 
which is amazing because now you're like fully present. And everything above the sun, which is, you know, in the Torah, God's will and wisdom, which is, you know, 613 hyperlinks, which you, when you click on comes to about 55,000 laws. But when you, when you get Torah involved, when you're looking at Torah, so now you know what's above the sun, which is truly meaningful, meaning there, there's two things then. There's what is, which could be your mother, it could be a cow, it could be your father, it could be a... You know, could be a slice of pizza, could be craft beer, could be some cranking music. I don't know what it is. So that you have that present, you're present to it, you're you're connecting to it, or you have God's will and wisdom for the creation. Now, where would God's will and wisdom show up when you got a cow? The answer is, well, it wouldn't really, except if it's your cow, you feed it before you feed yourself and your family. Because Torah teaches us to take care of your animals first. You would think about the cow when it comes to Shabbat, that you don't work it. We don't work our cows on Shabbat. But you'd also milk it because you wouldn't want your cow to suffer with, uh, with uh, in being engorged one day a week. So you'd make sure you'd milk it. But you wouldn't use the cow's milk on Shabbos because... Because what are you milking cows for on Shabbos? Uh, you're not supposed to be milking cows on Shabbos besides just alleviating them. So maybe you'd find another use for that milk. Could be it could be sold to Gentiles. I don't remember the laws of cows' milk from Shabbos. And, and then there's uh, many cows are automated today. So the cows just automatically go into something and then it, this giant computerized round massive thing. It's literally a robot milks the cows. I've seen it being done. So maybe that milk's okay because a Jew didn't milk the cows. I don't know. Or slaughter the cow. Slaughter that sucker. With all the laws from above the sun of how sharp that knife's got to be. And hit the right spot on the neck that it's going to cut off the oxygen to its brain. Do you know that the kosher animals, you know there's a ton of animals in the world. And every animal in the world has two arteries going to the brain. One comes from below, one comes from the back. But amazingly, the kosher animals in the Torah, the second artery that goes to the brain, only on those animals, it reconnects right in a certain, a, there's a certain area on the neck where they're both, those two arteries are together. And when you shut off oxygen to the brain, it's instant brain death. Instant. Meaning the knife hits, the brain goes out. It's instant brain death. And only the kosher animals have those two arteries come back to greet each other on that little area, which, of course, for 3,330 years, we have known what that area is and which animals have that. They're called kosher animals. And so the, the, um, but slaughter that cow and take the meat of that cow after having salted it, of course, because the Torah forbids eating blood, which means that from above the sun, we know it's meaningful to remove blood. You have to have your meat salted, unless, of course, you're going to do it on a spit or a barbecue, then that's the same as salting, because you can't eat blood. Take that meat to the butcher shop. The butcher now 
takes that meat and he pays the slaughterer for slaughtering the cow. The slaughterer now feeds his eight kids and pays for their Torah education. Do you realize what that cow has just done? Before, we were just present to the cow. Like, wow, look at that cow. It's so amazing, you know, the cow. Like, when we stopped making up meaning about the cow, it just became a cow. It just became your father, your mother, or, your, or, or, or a craft beer or something. It just is what it is. But now that we slaughtered it, and now the shochetz paying for it, the slaughterer is paying for his kids' education and feeding his children. And the butcher now is sending his kids to Torah education. And the meat's making its way onto Shabbos tables, where you're raising this food up to God in a way where we're commanded to feast. The Torah commands us to feast on Shabbos. Shamor, don't break Shabbos. Zachor, which means raise it up to the highest heights through the physical. Hence, eating that meat. So suddenly, cow has become totally transcendent. That cow now has become, and not to mention, let's not forget, that meat's going into the person. And that person's going out to do good deeds. So what was once just Bessie the cow has become Yankala, you know, the cobbler. And Yankala the cobbler now, that cow is now Yankala the cobbler who studies Torah, who helps people, who donates 10% of his shoemaking to people who can't afford shoes. So that cow was once a cow, but now that cow is like flying, man. That, that cow is like... That cow is from above the sun. Y'all having fun yet? You have a question, sir? Is the cow above the sun or is the cow potential above the sun? Well, when the cow was just a cow, then it had the potential to be above the sun. But once you, it gets a kosher slaughter, and oh, don't forget... Ladies, before you go, I just want to mention that the skin of the cow, what can you make from the skin of the cow, ladies? Yeah, what can you do with the skin? What? Excellent, yeah. You can take that skin and make a Torah. Whoa, talk about transcendent. I mean, that stuff so transcendent. You can't even impurify it. I mean, if you took a piece of impure meat, that would definitely like cause disqualify any priest from serving in the temple. You know, I just gave everyone on the live feed a little flash of the temple. It's great light today, anyway. With the, with the cloud cover, it's just kind of cool to see it. Anyway, a piece of impure anything that would quickly... That, oops, sorry, everybody. You're now famous. A piece of anything that would disqualify a coin from serving in the temple... You could, you could, you could like lay it across a Torah, and it. No, no. I mean the Torah's closed, and you know you could you can make the actual jacket out of it, of the Torah. It can't impurify it because this thing is so transcendent that it's imp- impenetrable to impurity. The Torah, meaning this thing is like super transcendent. 
Did you know that the Torah, that, did you know that if two letters, want to hear something deep? Uh, I mean, probably many of you know this, because I know I'm always preaching to the choir in this classroom. But if two letters, I'll ask you, you're the only, oh no, she's raised modern orthodox, ah, this ain't going to help anything. Um, if two letters, and he's out, if two letters, <laughs> if two letters of the Torah are touching each other, is the Torah kosher? Two letters. I mean, there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of letters in a Torah. If two letters are touching each other, I mean, they're clearly definable. Like, I see it's a tough, and I see that's a tzaddik. They're clearly two different letters. It's easy to read. But on one microscopic level, if you look close enough, you'll see they did wind up touching. Is the Torah kosher? No, the whole Torah is not kosher. You have to go in with a razor blade. You have to slice out little bit of the leather there that's stained with that ink there and remove it so that they're not touching the question is why what is the big deal how can you have a Torah that's worth uh, let's say a new Torah that a scribe like uh, I met a scribe yesterday who his Torahs cost $160,000 but he's the, one of the best scribes in the world a Torah is usually supposed to be a year of livelihood for the scribe because it takes about a year so you have to pay for his livelihood so let's say depending on the city he lives Let's say average $75,000, let's say, for the year. This guy's double because he's, you know, one of the best scribes. But you don't have to have him write your Torah. And uh, anyway, that $160,000 Torah is, is worthless. It, it would have, if you didn't slice it out, you'd have to bury it. And Is somebody proofreading it? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's computer, they're actually computer, pre- they're human and computer proofread. Anyway, anyway, it's okay. You just remove a little bit, but you guys know why. Why is it not kosher? You ready for this? Because the entire Torah is actually a double Torah. There's the black on white, that's the one we read, and there's the white on black, which probably for hundreds of years we haven't had someone who knows how to read. Meaning... It's probably been hundreds of years since the last person could read the white. But the white is an entire Torah. And we don't even know how to read it. There have been people who know how. And that's why on our tefillin, you know the black boxes we wear on our heads? That's why you'll notice that one side of the tefillin has a three-armed shin. And the other side has a four-armed shin. You know why it has a four-armed shin? Who can see the three-armed shin in my four fingers? Do you see the negative space there? It's a three-armed shin in there. So, so the negative space is also a shin. Because there's, there's such a... Because the Torah itself has a written black on white, but it's also got the white on black. And if two letters are touching, what's the problem there? It, it doesn't read the same. The white doesn't read the same. Even though no one knows how to read that. But... It's there. Yes, ma'am. Why do the people who could read the light not teach it to other people? Everything is always taught. It's just that we, over the years we've lost it. Um, we've unfortunately, um, if you want to blame anyone for that, I guess the best person to blame would start with the, I would start with Amalek, then I would move to the Babylonians, then I would move to the Persians. Uh, then I would go to the Greeks, then I would go to the Romans, uh, then I would just go to Europeans in general. And uh, 
And then I would just go to, I guess, today's modern Western sieve that that turns everyone's brain into a sieve. Yeah? And, uh, but had it not been for the Gentiles, we would know the white on the black. It's just that we've been through hell. You know, and, and this is why Jews are... This is why Jews who understand spirituality are very similar to like natives of like the Amazon and stuff. Meaning when we see a Westerner, we're just like, okay, we're going to treat, we're going to be careful with this. Friends, we are not. Maybe we can, you know, like interface in some way or another that would be mutually beneficial, but boy, are we going to be weary of this interaction. We're going to be super careful of this one because, because we've been through living hell and we've lost our job in life because our job, the Jews have one job. Our one job is to be this, this pipe, this, uh, I need a better word than a pipe, this conduit, this, we're called the Torah tell, says it, we're a nation of priests. But how are you supposed to be a nation of priests when the people you're a priest for, meaning the Gentiles, can't stop killing you and persecuting you? And today they persecute us in much more subtle ways. Did you know, you want to hear something crazy? In Europe, when the U.S. You know, was kind of, had gotten on their feet, so Europe, I don't know how long ago, maybe 80, 90 years ago, certainly 100 years ago, 150 years ago, but what happened was, People had opportunities to go to the New World. And they would go, um, they'd be in a situation where their city, where they were in a place that was getting, uh, the Jews were getting expelled. So what do you do when you're getting expelled? Jews are always getting expelled from wherever they are. So the Jews are getting expelled again. And good luck keeping the white on the black Torah while being expelled. You know, it's like, okay, kids, pack your bags and say goodbye to our house that no one's buying because we're being thrown out again and what happens is the um, they would go to the rabbis where do I go <laughs> you go to your rabbi every community had a rabbi so you want to know something crazy there were rabbis who would send Jews to to Russia where Jews were like horribly persecuted atheism was being like promulgated you know intensely uh, amongst other villainous periods of time where there were rabbis that would send to Russia as opposed to the U.S. And when they asked him, well, why shouldn't I go to the U.S. where like, I can practice freely? He says, yeah, you'll practice freely, but your, grandparent, your grandchildren will be Gentiles. So just go to Russia and suffer, and maybe your kids will be Jewish. So like, you know, like it's, it's, we, we, would, we would think all that persecution, like things have gotten better, but they actually got worse. They actually got worse, and... And in case any of you are wondering about this, you should know that more Jews have disappeared from the census in Western countries. You know, when they do the yearly census and people have to mark their Jewish, more Jews have lost, we've lost from the census since World War II than were killed in that war. More Jews have dropped out of the census of being Jewish just through assimilation into the, the Western washout. We, Jews don't do good with Westernism. And they, they, so we've lost more Jews from that. Israel alone, the secular state of Israel alone has had more abortions 
of Jewish fetuses than were killed in the Holocaust of the, you know, any of you been in the, in the uh, Yad Vashem, the Jewish Holocaust Memorial, there's a children's memorial for the million children. I don't know if they're setting up another memorial now for the, for the million secular fetuses from secular families paid for by the state, all on the state's, you know, on our tax dollars, over a million fetuses aborted. Well, as I was saying, we're not <laughs> friends with Westerners. <laughs> we don't like Westernism, and we are not Westerners. And that, that's why whenever you hear like people say like Western re- religions or Western traditions, and they're including Judaism, they even have this thing called like Judeo-Christian. You ever heard that term together? It's like, it's an oxymoron. It's like you can't get two opposites, anything more opposite than Judaism and Christianity. Or you can't get any two bigger opposites than Westernism and Judaism. So like calling us a Western tradition is like an absolute oxymoron. So the, the Jews, are, we're not Westerners. We, are, we have a very important job, and it is transcendence. <laughs> Which is what this class is really all about, is about transcendence. And let's get back to that magic. Is That's what we're here to do. That's what we're here to be. So the sentence altogether is, You have been shown to know Ki Hashem, that which surrounds space and time. That's what fills space and time, the plurality. The word Elohim is the plural name of God because it's made of multiplicity. Ki Hashem hu Elohim, ein od milvadoi, ein od milvado. There is nothing else. Not you, not me. There's nothing else, and we say that vehu echad veein what? Sheni. We say in our prayers vehu echad. He is one. Ve'en sheni, there is no other, not you, not me. Now, wouldn't you think it's a little peculiar that in our entire Torah, and including all the Tanakh, meaning the prophets and the writings, in the entire thing, not one time does it say that there's one God. It never mentions there being one God, ever. All it says is that he is one. Now, if he is one, then there can only be one of them. But all it says is he is one. He's an indivisible oneness. And all the divisibility you see in this room is an illusion. It's not real. All there is is God. This is all made of elokus. It's just a... It's an an illusion. It's it's just our perspective puts us as separate entities in here. Because God knows what he's doing and he's created it this way. But, but really, all there is is God. Why do you think when we say that all there is is God, when we say God is one, not that there's one of them, but that he is one, why do you think we cover our eyes? Why do we cover We close our eyes and cover them. It's a double cover, because you already have covers. And then you put a double cover. By the way, I think one of the reasons for the double cover is interesting. Everyone, take a second. If you're wearing glasses, take them off for a second. So close your eyes, and you'll notice that there is a lot of light there. Now, press your hands against it and check out the difference. And now look into that darkness and you'll notice that it's, there's no distinctions. It's undifferentiated oneness. 
So what's happening, what our sages set up is that when we say Shema, our sages indicated that we should cover our eyes such that it's so dark that you can't distinguish any distinctions in the Elohim aspect. Elohim is the plural name of God of how God's broken up into each of us and each table and chair and pen and cup, molecule of water, every H and every two and every O. When we say God's, when we're talking about God's oneness, we're to press our hands onto our eyes and go to the oneness. Because God wants us, because our, our, our perception, by the way, your eyes collect way more noise than your ears. Way more. And just the speed of it is enough because your eyes collect at the speed of light. Well, think how much stimulation that is compared to the speed of sound, which is my voice right now, or music. Why do you think sound's so much more spiritual? You ever thought about this? Why is sound so much spiritual, more spiritual than sight? I could place, if we shut off lights here and I got my guitar and just started playing, I'd have everyone in the room sobbing within a half hour. I mean, I'd have to say a few things during. Why is it so much more spiritual? <laughs> I'd have to, yeah, sound. You want to know why? Well, I, I thought about that. Oh, great. What, what did you get? The question is, why? Why does it go in like that? That was my question. Why does it go in the way vision does it? And the answer is, is because, because our nervous system is taking in a lot less at a much slower speed that we get it. We get it. So when the music's coming in, this is why you got to be careful what kind of music you're listening to because you're getting stuff. You're getting all kinds of stuff that uh, we'll never really understand how much we're getting, but we get it when it comes to music. It, I mean, it goes in, and uh, whereas visuals, there's an absolute sensory attack at the speed of light, with like massive, massive uh, in influx of stimulation. And so, yes, you can have spiritual moments. I mean, anyone goes into the Alps. You've been to the Alps as you climb up towards the. I mean, my wife and I took a trip to the Alps a couple of years ago. We just had to keep pulling out, not because we wanted to see the view. We had to pull out because I, I couldn't drive from the spiritual moments we were having of just absolute awe. You know, just awe. But it wore off. After a couple of days in the Alps, I was like, get me out of here. You know, like, let me go back to, like, normal people. I mean, everything's so... Um, I mean, uh, the people were wonderful, but they were, they were so... Um, uh, what do you call something too clean? Meticulous. What do you call something like when they open up those tools in the dentist's office? Oh, the they're sanitary. Yeah, Jews are not that sanitary. We're like, we want to like feel it, man. We want to like, you know, we're we're just not like that, you know. And so there was only so much I could take of like, thank you. You know, from the staff at the hotel, you know, like, if one person speaks to me like that again, I'm going to, like, bust out some crazy minor tone scaled niggin, you know, and freak everybody out, you know, but we're, we're just not that clean, you know, which is crazy. I was there another trip. I took my executive students to, to Davos, Switzerland, and there was this whole stink because 
because uh, speaking of stink, they, there was this whole stink, not with my guys, but one of the hotels wrote a sign saying, Jews, please shower before you use the pool. Aww. One of the hotels in Arosa, which is the next town over from Davos. Jews, please shower before you go in the pool. And the only reason they were saying that was because Jews wouldn't necessarily think about that. Just jump in the damn pool, man. <laughs> you see the pool? Jump in it. You know, they got chlorine. It's got a filter. Like, what the hell's wrong with everybody? You know, so the Jews just go over there and jump in. Wouldn't you? I mean, jump in the thing. You know, it's, it's filled with chlorine. It's got a filter. If it gets too dirty, add chlorine. You know, but Gentiles would never think about that. Gentiles are like, you're going in a public pool. Have some the common decency to shower yourself off. Use soap. Use shampoo. Rinse it. And get in. Which also makes all the sense in the world unless you're Jewish. So, anyway, so they wrote a sign, Jews, because it was the, only the Jews. So that it was just letting the Jews know. You know, what is the etiquette? In Switzerland, was not a big deal. But boy, did that make rounds, man. That place, that hotel got sanctioned. Like, even the, like, members of Knesset were, were like, condemning the hotel. Because they had to. The, the members of Knesset have been to Switzerland way more than anyone else. I mean, they, they know you shower before you get in the pool, you know. And that Jews don't. So... Whatever. At least in my mikvah, they sh- everyone has to shower before they get in the mikvah. And I'll be the cop in case someone thinks they're getting in there dry. Mm-hmm. You know, the guy's like, I showered at home. And I'm like, that's nice. I don't want anyone seeing you get in the, mik- in the mikvah without a shower. Just go put some water on yourself so at least you look like you're showered before the mikvah so that people don't start copying you. Everyone, it's, it's late. Uh, oh, come on in. What's up, bro? We're, we're starting the next class now, so... Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm just finishing up here. Anyway, we didn't get very far. I thought I really only was teaching this class because I was in such a low mood. But I see my mood like went up like like tenfold as I started getting into the constant thing. This is the class that you always know I'm in a low mood if I teach this class. Because it's not my class. <laughs> this is Rob North Weinberg's class. And it's an amazing class, by the way. If you want me to go on tomorrow, I don't mind doing it. I doubt I'll be in this mood tomorrow. Because a low mood for anybody never lasts more than a day. So, so please, God, uh, I'll teach it tomorrow. And, or maybe you want me to teach you how to never have a low mood for more than a day. A lot of people yeah. don't know that trick. Yeah. So I can teach that, too. Okay, shalom, everybody. Have a great day. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.